0: Alright? There's a lot going on this week in this parasha. The primary idea in this parasha, Bet Hanan, in fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy, is to address the continuation of God's word after Israel enters the Holy Land. In fact, this book stands apart from the other four books of Torah in many ways. And while I think it's worthwhile to address a couple of them, we can do that at a later time. For now, let's just look at the idea that the whole point of Devarim is to summarize the instructions that were given to God's people. This serves a couple of purposes. First off, it gave the author a chance to highlight what he felt was most important in Torah. Not that there is a single idea, phrase, word, or even letter that's unimportant. But he distilled Adam's instructions down to the high points, the things that needed to be understood and followed but the study of the more detailed text to be worthwhile. The same techniques used later by Paul in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. They made sure the Gentiles believer coming into a Torah fellowship could fellowship with Torah-observant people so they wouldn't offend while they were learning the finer points. It's kind of like making sure that someone understands what baking is and how to turn on an oven before you dive into the fine points of a pineapple upside-down cake. Second, it makes the basics a bit more accessible. Let's face it, a Torah scroll is a fairly intimidating piece of literature for your average farmer or shepherd to assimilate. The average everyday people who comprise the majority of the apple of God's eye often couldn't keep every detail of Torah in their mind for instant recall. After all, as we saw the last time I was up here, that's why they instituted the, the procedure of reading them on a weekly basis every week so they reached the whole Torah. Allow me to use an illustration that most of us can identify with. Who among us has seen The Wizard of Oz? Okay. Jack. Tell me the story of The Wizard of Oz. Oz. The Wizard of Oz. Tell me the story. Um, Dorothy gets caught up into a, a whirlwind, into a tornado. Lands in the land of Oz, and the adventure starts. She's uh, searching for a way to get back home. And the story is about uh, how she uh, uses her, or meets friends along the way who help her accomplish her goal of okay. getting back home to Kansas. Alright, that's. But no, no. you left out a lot. Uh, but that's kind of the point of what we're talking about here. Was that the story? Was the telling wrong because it didn't include every detail? Right, it was a summary. But it wasn't wrong because it left out all the details. Most importantly, if you hadn't seen the film or read the book, would that, would that little summary make you interested in seeing the rest of the story? That alone is reason enough to summarize the history of the Israelites and their relationship with Adonai, before beginning a new chapter of their existence as possessors of the land promised to Abraham's chosen people. If a few details got written down in a different order between one telling and the next, that really doesn't affect the importance or the truth of the, the lessons being taught. Any more than leaving out the flying monkeys in a summary makes The Wizard of Oz a less enjoyable classic. And I like the flying monkeys. They're my favorite. Jack still gave us the essence of the tale. And that's what we're looking at here, the chance for Israel to pass on the essence of their covenant to the next generation, in the hope that some would be inspired to carry on the rest of it. A lot of that essence and those basics are found in this parasha. Going over the basics, the Decalogue, in chapter five, we find the same Ten Commandments given in Exodus twenty. The first one is the foundation for all of the covenant relationship between God and his people. Deuteronomy 5.6 I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. That is the reason why we are God's people. That is the reason why God has the right to tell us where are got his people. The next few commandments describe how God's people should relate to Adonai. And the final set describes how they relate to each other. Again, it's not an exhaustive list exhaustive list of everything that pleases or displeases God there are literally hundreds of sins and blessings not mentioned but it covers the basics and if you can manage to perfectly keep these ten commandments you're pretty well on the path to understanding and keeping all of Torah now the next passage I want to look at is the Shema while it's difficult not a little dangerous to state that one passage of scripture is more or less important than another, there's no denying that this prayer is foundational to the Jewish people, not only as a religion, but as a culture and a nation. You'd be hard-pressed to find any place in the world where if you began singing this prayer, any even marginally observant Jew wouldn't be able to join in and sing along with you, no matter if you were unable to communicate anything else in any language that both of you could understand. Traditionally, it's the first Hebrew prayer taught to a young child. And for thousands of the faithful, it's the last prayer to pass their lips for entering Halam haba, world to come. For many of you here, it's the one verse of the Tanakh that you could join in and sing communally in the original language. In fact, let's do that, all together. Shema. Okay, keep going. Listen up, God's people. Adonai is our God. Adonai is one, or Adonai alone. The next line Baruch Shem Kvod That's actually a rabbinic addition to the scriptural text. In case you missed it when John taught this, that's why it's usually recited in an undertone. The next section though goes back to our Deuteronomy passage. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Just as a brief aside, although you can't tell me English, this passage is written to you personally, individually. All the verbs, love, talk, Impress, tie, write, they're all second person singular. They're written not so much to the entire nation of Israel, but to every individual comprising God's people. Let's go over a few of the things that I told personally to you and me to do. Impress them on your children. This is really the second biggest message of the Shema. Admittedly, the whole love God with your whole heart, soul, and strength, that's the big one. But that's not what we're talking about today, so back to the impressing on the children. Remember just a few minutes ago, we were talking about summarizing the Torah so it could be more easily passed on to the next generation of Israel that wasn't there at Sinai? Moses hit the highlights of the covenant, so people would have the basics. And they could go deeper into his word once they were mature enough to do so. That's exactly what you are commanded to do here. What's more, while we just recited that these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts, it may shock some of you to learn that the more literal translation would be, May these words that I command you today be upon your hearts. What's the difference? Well, the difference is what exactly you're passing on to the next generation. The first reading tells you to pass on all the commandments to your children. It means telling your children what to do and what not to do, and to follow the law of God, and it leaves it at that. The words that I command you, on the other hand, encompasses not only the commandments, but every word of Torah, every word of Scripture. It includes the law, the history, and the poetry of Scripture. It includes both the commandments and the lessons from all those stories that we absorbed from the time that we were tiny little children. It takes even those stories that non-believers know. People who have never cracked open a Bible in their lives, like Noah's Ark, David and Goliath. And it gives them the force of divine command these are what we are to impress upon our children. Now for what it's worth, and it may sound like that here because I make these arguments occasionally, I'm not suggesting we change the English and other liturgy. Just that you should understand there's often a subtle difference between any translation and the intent of the original author. I still recite the Shema and Vahavta every morning and evening just like we do here at Adat. I find comfort in the familiar words and phrasings, and I hope that you do too. Speaking of morning and evening, tradition has decreed that the Shema should be recited every morning and evening, when you lie down and when you get up. It's a good practice to keep these concepts fresh daily in your mind. But is that what the passage is commanding? What the Vahavta commands is that you should talk about the words of Scripture when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you're at home and when you're somewhere else, basically. That covers where we should think, talk, and share about Scripture. At home, and elsewhere. It's kind of like the phrase Jews and Gentiles. Everyone's either a Jew or a Gentile because there is no third category. In the same way, wherever you go is either home or somewhere else. There is no third category. You might object there is a third category for work, but honestly, if you're like me, you spend more waking hours at work than at home anyway, so it's kind of like home too. Now, when you lie down and when you get up. This one covers the when of thinking, talking, and sharing about the Word of God. The good news is that it's not quite as all-encompassing as the where. You should be talking about Scripture from the time you wake up until the time you go to sleep. So it's perfectly acceptable to think and talk about other things while you're unconscious. That's good news, right? Okay. Now for the mitzvah to tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. There are two main interpretations of that line, depending on whether you're reading it from a rabbinic or poetic point of view. The rabbinic interpretation says this line refers to Tefillin. Now before I go into any further, does everyone here know what Tefillin are? Mostly. They're little leather boxes that Orthodox Jews strap to their hands and foreheads for the morning and evening prayers. They contain a few key passages of scripture, including this one written carefully by a sofa on a piece of parchment and fitted very carefully into a little box. In Matthew twenty-three five, which I think we read this morning, we see a reference to Pharisees broadening their phylacteries and enlarging the borders of their garments. The phylacteries are the tefillin, and there's archaeological evidence that before the first century A.D., the tefillin were a lot smaller than they are now, and usually worn all the time. In the same way, the tzitzit, we all know what tzitzit are, they were usually just a, were more like the rest of the thing. They were almost a little fringe around the outside of the garments. And what Yeshua was talking about was the modern versions of Tiflin and Tzitzit that, we, Tzitzit that we have today. After the Sadducees came to a functional end with the destruction of the temple, the Pharisee practice of wearing the, the larger, Tzitzit, the larger uh, Tzitzit and the larger Tzitzit, uh became the Jewish norm. So we see the modern commandment to bind the upon the hand morning and night, as opposed to the original practice of wearing them all the time. Uh, We wear them morning and night when you lie down and when you get up. The more poetic interpretation, though, relates more to your actions and worldview than to a specific prayer. And it fits nicely with the universal implications of the where and when lines. Another illustration, what does it mean to see the world through rose-colored glasses? It means what you see through affects how you see it. If you see the world through rose-colored glasses, everything looks rosy. See the world through dark sunglasses, everything seems dark. And see the world through Torah-colored glasses, then everything you see relates to God's Word. If Scripture, and the ultimate author of Scripture, is always before you, bound like frontlets before your eyes, then everything that happens around you is seen through Torah-colored glasses. You can't ignore it, because it's always there, between you and the world, coloring all that you perceive. Well, That covers everything that comes into your mind. But what comes out of mind? Words, usually. We've already covered that one. We said, talk about them when you sit at home when you walk along the road. The other way our idea is expressed is in our actions, the work of our hands. If the words of Scripture are tied to our hands then we can't actually attempt or accomplish anything without seeing God in it. If we see the world through Torah-colored glasses, then we handle the world with Torah-lined gloves. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. This one's fairly straightforward and simple. Anyone who comes into your presence or enters your realm of influence should be aware of whom you follow. That's not that hard. And now back to the beginning of our discussion. Possibly the most important line in the passage, save the best for last. Impress them on your children. Believe it or not, while teaching your children scripture is a great thing, we're not talking about Bible thumping and making a literal impression on your children. Hitting them with the Bible to have a backwards KJV on their foreheads. Passing on traditions and stories. Sharing scripture in application. Not just talking about the traditions that illustrate your understanding, but making those actions part of our daily lives. Fathers, your children may hear you say that you love them like God loves them, but when they see you blessing them every Friday night, they'll internalize that. Mothers, you can teach your children to be a light to the world, but when they see you lighting Shabbat candles every week, they'll see how important that concept is to you, and it'll become important to them. When they see you passing up a pepperoni pizza, they'll understand that all of the little choices that we make every day affect our relationship with Adonai. Now, Although there have been differences in different areas, this tradition of passing on the commandments from one generation to the next has been the backbone of the Jewish people for millennia. It's called door to the door, generation to generation. You've all heard the phrase, the Jews have not kept the Shabbat so much as the Shabbat has kept the Jews. Now despite the various differences in observance from one community to another, it's this unity in passing on the traditions, scriptures, and ideals of God's people from one generation to the next that has defined Israel. And by that I mean not just the genetic people of Israel, but the commonwealth of Israel, all of those who struggle with God. It's why there is a Jewish people. You can't accurately point out a Hittite or a Canaanite. But you can point out a Jew, because they passed on that tradition and culture for millennia. Reform, conservative, orthodox, secular, do I say messianic? There is still a history of tradition passed down from one generation to the next. Every parent tries to pass on the best of their relationship with God and with the world around them to their children. Every parent tries, usually unsuccessfully, to shield the children from the mistakes that they made. As we look at our reading in Matthew twenty three this morning, we can see that this parent child relationship, the love and desire for our children to be the best that they can be, is the nature of Yeshua's lament. He desires what's best for his children, just like any parent does. Still they fall away and pick up different values just like any child does. They break his heart, just like all children do. That doesn't stop him from wanting to protect them, just like any parent. All of us who have children wish that our offspring were more like us in some ways, and less like us in others. We want to protect and defend those whom we love, just like Yeshua cries that he wishes he could gather his people protectively under his wings, just like any parent does when their baby is hurting themselves. Just hurting. Of course, Adonai's relationship with us isn't as simple as any one illustration. Still, the parent child relationship is one of the most common ones used in Scripture and relates directly to the central prayer of God's people. God desires to pass on his ideals and values to his children. Now, the biggest difference is that we as parents are imperfect, so there are parts of ourselves we'd rather not pass on. Our Heavenly Father, though, is perfect and he impresses his word upon his children and it's in his image that we are commanded to impress these words upon your children now how many of you are thinking to yourselves that's pretty cool but doesn't really apply to me I don't have any children my children don't listen to me my children are already grown up and have chosen a different path here's a little exhortation for you parent doesn't necessarily mean biological Now, the first obvious exception is adopted and stepchildren. There are several examples here in this congregation. I'll hold myself up as an example. I think most of you know that Becca and I don't share any genetic link whatsoever. For every practical intent and purpose, though, she's my daughter. It's honestly amusing how many people think that she takes after me much more than her mother. She grew up in my home. The decisions that I made and the choices that I made and the values I expressed made an impact on her. And she blossomed into a godly young woman despite them. I see you still saying, though, even if they're not biological, these are still your children, so that still didn't apply to me. I'm telling you, you have an influence over all the children in your family, and your family is bigger than what you're thinking. There's a concept in Judaism called mishpacha. Let's all say that together mishpacha. Close, that's very good. It's usually translated as family. But the imagery goes much beyond just the nuclear family. It goes beyond your blood relations. It could be your clan, your guild, simply the people with whom you relate, not just your relations. Here at Adat, we have a mishpacha. Because we share a vision and an expression. We have a way in which we do things. And that shared halacha is part of what makes us a mishpacha. A good example and one that's defined communities for hundreds of generations, is how we keep kosher. We, as a mishpacha, allow cheeseburgers, because we as a community interpret the relevant scripture in a particular way, even though a more orthodox community would not. We don't allow catfish, again, because we hold to a particular interpretation of the scriptures, where many messianic groups do. What that means to us on a day-to-day basis is that we can share a meal with members of our mishpachah without worrying about whether we're going to offend or be offended by what's served. I can go to the home of any of our regular attendees and mooch a meal and be comfortable in eating it. (laughs) Many of you know I make a regular practice of this. Now coming eventually back to the point, if one of the children of the congregation asks you if something's okay to eat, your family. You can tell them and help to carry on the traditions that bind us here together. You can play a part in impressing them on your children. What if you just don't like kids? Kids don't talk to you. You scare kids away. In Yeshua's day in Jerusalem, there were two very prominent rabbis, Hillel and Shammai. They had wildly different interpretations on a lot of passages of scripture. If you agreed with Hillel and followed his interpretation, then you are considered to be Beit Hillel, of the house of Hillel. If you liked Shammai's teachings, you were Beit Shammai. Now these were adults. People mature enough to make a reasoned decision one way or the other. And the rabbi wasn't really their father, but they were considered his children. When they had a question, they'd ask another child of that rabbi, and he'd impress the interpretation on the children, even though they were both peers. Now, this can be both pleasant and unpleasant. It's tremendous joy to feel that you are serving God to the very best of your ability. And teaching does that. But passing on these traditions, interpretations, values, you are teaching others how to serve. Yeshua gives a stern warning to teachers in Matthew 5.19. If God gives you the opportunity to teach a child, no matter their age, It's a heavy responsibility with which he has honored you. Okay, if you've dozed off up to now, it's time to wake up. Because we've reached the daily application point of the message. As much fun as it is to listen to all of this information, how do I use it in my life? First, study and learn. Make it a disciplined practice to glean something about your faith and practice every day. After all, if you haven't learned it, you can't teach it, can you? Now, I don't mean that everyone should pore over dusty tones of theology. I like to, but that's not for everybody. Meditating on a single verse of scripture can give you new insight. Do that every day. Chatting with a friend can reveal how to do something. Do that every day. Practicing our traditions in everyday ways can show you new applications. And for what it's worth, when someone asks you about a particular aspect of your faith expression, if you don't know the answer, just say so. If you don't know the answer to a question, then I don't know is the wisest answer you can give. And then it gives you a chance to go study and find out the answer. So what should you study? Torah, scripture, these are always edifying. They are the basis of our expression. And one of the primary tools for understanding why we have a faith to express. Scripture is the sieve through which all of our theology and practice must pass. And if it doesn't line up, it should be at least questioned, if not outright rejected. But you can't do that if you don't know the word. Halakha. Halakha is how we do things. The word literally means walk. And the halakha is the way in which we walk through life. It's easy to say that we walk according to Torah. That is our intent, isn't it? Sometimes, though, there's an awful lot of room left open for interpretation. Torah tells us not to work on the Shabbat. I think we can all agree that that doesn't change from community to community. But what exactly is work? What constitutes working on Shabbat? That definition varies wildly. The traditions and interpretations of the Dat HaMashiach constitute our Halakha. Learn it. You should make a focus of your study the traditions of our community and other communities. How and why are they different? Why does Chabadnik never uncover his head? We take off our kippot as soon as we leave the synagogue. Why do some synagogues serve pepperoni pizza while we never would? Study different traditions and understand them. It will make you better understand yours. It make you understand why you do what you do. And finally, know the difference between tradition and commandment. And where appropriate, honor both. Don't just know what to do. Know why, why you do what you do. Know why you don't do what you don't do. Know why others do what they do. And if you disagree with them, that's fine. They're still walking with God. Now all of this talk about teaching and learning leads inevitably to the doctrine of discipling. The application here is actually pretty simple. Point one. You should be a disciple. Look around. the congregation here. Someone here knows more about God than you do. Someone here understands something about scripture or tradition that you don't. You should always strive to grow. If you're driving a car, say you're, you're sitting in a car in your parking lot, and you're pointed west. And you know that where you want to go is north. How do you get the car pointed toward north? You turn the wheel, you're not going to turn and change the direction of the car. So no matter how much you turn it back and forth, you've got to be moving to change the direction either growing, going forward or going backwards. Even when you're backsliding, you have the momentum to change direction and point towards God. Of course, when you're moving forward towards God, it's easier because you don't have to make up the lost room. But any movement in your walk in faith gives you the opportunity to refine your direction, to change to where you're pointed more towards God wants you to be. Point two. Point one is you should be a disciple. Point two is you should be a discipler. Look around the congregation. Someone in this room knows less about God than you do. I don't care who you are. Somebody knows less than you do. Someone here doesn't understand something about scripture or tradition that you do. You have a unique insight because nobody else has experienced everything that you have in the way that you have. You should always strive to grow the best way to learn and understand something is to teach it to someone else. In growing together as a family, we recognize that we are all unique. Each of us has a different relationship with Adonai. It's amazing, Adonai is infinite. He can be one God and yet show a different facet of himself to each and every person in the world, no matter how many billions there are. Each of us is at a different point in our walk with God. I know that it's painful to contemplate, but something that is earth-shatteringly important to you might not be of much value to someone else. A fighter jet pilot might not really need to know how a stick shift in a Volkswagen works. But a 15-year-old kid learning how to drive, it can be a very important lesson. On the other hand, trying to teach that 15-year-old kid how to negotiate mock airstreams would be an exercise in futility. Share it anyway. Doesn't matter whether they understand it or not. Share it anyway. Now try and share it in a way that they understand if you can. But share it anyway. If it doesn't make sense now, it'll be there for the Ruach to call up when it's needed later. That's it. Go forth and continue to study, learn, and practice your faith.